Mary's song. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will be called me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with, deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their most thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said, said to our fathers. The word of the Lord. God, you may be seated. The kids are welcome to join Kelly for Kids Church today. The psalm this morning began with the lines that I could sing of your faithfulness. And we heard read um, Mary's song of singing of God's faithfulness just before the sermon starts. And, and there's this, um, there's two sort of observations here. One is if you're looking for devotional practices, we get closer to Christmas as it's coming fast. Um, uh, you could read the songs that are sung in Luke's gospel. There's four of them. Um, there's uh, uh, two in the first chapter and two in the second chapter, and there are these powerful testimonies to who God is and what he is doing in the world. Two, two from barren women, uh, one from angels, and one from a man at the temple, um, and they each take place. As you read them, you can notice both what they proclaim, but also where they take place. God seems to be gathering from the temple, the center of all things, but also from other places as well. What are the social location of these songs? But the second thing to notice about that I could sing of your love, I could sing of your faithfulness, is we live in a a world, weirdly, that shields joy for the most part. I mean, if you watch somebody win the Super Bowl, you get to go nuts, but most of the rest of our lives, it's like, Uh, I don't want to sing, I don't want to get too excited about this. You sort of guard your joy. Um, And it's an odd thing. It it almost, um, I think it comes from we're worried of the ironic or irony so much or being uh, authentic. Uh, This is is weird. Authenticity is sort of this this high value in our world. And yet what keeps us from doing it sometimes, and I've, I've criticized authenticity, so don't hear me say that this is a good thing, but, um, but we, we want to seem authentic so we don't express our joy because it would seem fake. And what we see in Mary and the other psalms or songs that open the chapter of Luke is people not afraid to express their joy. I had a friend once who would say if somebody, there was a, it must have been with two people because one of them would say, I was so excited I could have burst into song and the other person would say, well, well then why didn't you? Um, 
And we lack that in our world, that, that something might cause us to, to have authentic, real expression of the joy that we feel in our hearts. Um, there are thin places, perhaps, where it shows up, but, but in many ways, it's, it's a muted thing for us. And so what the psalmist proclaims for us and what Mary and the other witnesses in Scripture proclaim for us is that joy is something we can unboundedly sing to God. It's extravagant. It's something in which we can vocalize those things. The second thing from today's readings, um, 1 Samuel and particularly Romans um, or, or, and Mary's song and the psalm, sorry, is, is that Jesus doesn't come from from nowhere. I think one of the hard parts about celebrating Advent and the way that we're celebrating it, um, and, and if many of you don't know, I don't pick the readings during Advent or Lent normally. Uh, the lectionary, which is used by denominations throughout the world, um, not just Protestant, but also Catholic and Orthodox, they, they differ some, um, is how I'm getting the readings for Advent. So if you're like, well, that was weird, that weird thing from Romans, know that one, I thought the same thing, um, and two, uh, I didn't choose it. Um, but what from Don read from Romans is that this mystery is being proclaimed. What once was hidden is now being revealed. We, living at this point um, in time after the, the life, uh, birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ, can miss that this is something that, that was a mystery or was a secret that we now bring out in joy, and it gives glory to God. That, that Romans is naming for us that this thing, and, and if you read Romans, there's this, uh, all of it, which most people don't, there's this huge tension that Paul gets into about sort of um, what happens to Israel. Because God will be faithful. For, for, for Paul, it's very important, particularly in Romans, that God is not doing a new thing, but God is being faithful to the promises that God has made. And for us, we um, aren't friends with synagogues anymore. None of us have gotten expelled from synagogues. Uh, none of us have come out of those places. And so we can be tempted to think that the Christ revealing is this new thing, that the latter half of the Bible uh, isn't that, or the, the front half of the Bible is, is merely pointing to, but is not that important. When in fact, um, in the New Testament frame of reference in the majority, it is... Um, the revelation of those truths being held faithful. It's not some new thing. It's something that God has promised through multiple prophets and generations. That, and so when we come through Advent like this, um, to spend the time to acknowledge that Jesus doesn't come from nowhere, but comes from a people, a line, a story, a narrative structure and way of understanding the universe, a religion, a practicing sect, then we can begin to experience the joy of what Christmas is. As you can imagine, it's like, oh, it's just, it just comes. Jesus just, is just revealed, and we knew nothing beforehand. That's the way I think I celebrated it as a kid. And yet there are uh, all these things pointing to that from the Old Testament and prophets, and, and it's not lost. And so this is um, from Second Samuel. Um, which uh, Brian read for us, is David has, has made it uh, to, to where he's at top and all of Saul's foes, this rival kings, have been uh, put out and, and he's like, oh, I live in a nice place. I should build a nice place for God. 
Um, and what happens is the prophet Nathan, who he has, uh, David has a fun relationship with the prophet Nathan. Um, Nathan says, go for it. Um, God should have a nice place too. And what happens is, is that God comes to Nathan and says, that's not the way it's going to be. Didn't I walk with these people? Wasn't I homeless with them? Didn't I go where they go and where, uh, be with them where they are? And not so much so that I even complained to say, can you get me someplace better than this tent? And what he says, there's this, in, in Hebrew it becomes more obvious, is that he is going to build a, a legacy, which is similar to the house, through the line of David. That he's going to build um, a permanent, lasting thing through the line of David as king. It's not the house that he's going to live in or that David would build for him that's important, but this legacy of this righteous king who God is going to call out. This is um, uh, the promise, and so it's, it's why we often acknowledge, and, and when we remember, is that Joseph, Jesus' father, is from the line of David. And that's important because this is the fulfillment of that promise, that this lineage is, is where Jesus comes from and where he um, is born out of. And so 2 Samuel for us uh, places us in that spot of this God who is both near and comes with his people and walks with them. And it's, and it's a wonderful point to God with us, the incarnation, who then walks with us, goes to the darkest places, goes to death and is raised to new life. That God has been with Israel and faithful to them and followed them is is a wonderful sort of pointer to the God who will then come among us and walk in those ways. Now, what should be noted is that um, the psalm we only read a portion of today. Again, I do not pick these things. Um, But that psalm, which we read happy portions from, breaks into a lament in its second half. And that lament is is sort of how will the... uh, Wrong, this is Mary's words. Um... Uh, How long, Lord, will you hide yourself? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how fleeting is my life. For what futility have you created all humanity? Who can live and not see death? Who can escape the power of the great? Lord, where is your former great love, which is your faithfulness? You swore to David. The Jews, um, in their preserving of the Old Testament, they, they keep the bad parts. Um, uh, which is which is weird. You you wouldn't think that that would be natural to like. Let's put in the psalm that we wrote when we were frustrated by God because it did not appear that He was keeping His promises to David. I mean, it's almost like in in uh, you. you apologetics classes or people who do apologetics at college campuses, it'd be like that you could go and they'd pull out your book and be like, look, you guys even admit this isn't happening. Um, You admit failure has come. Uh, Case closed, let's all go out and nobody changes their mind and it's just a futile exercise. Anyways, but um, uh, they've preserved in their book that these things, their frustrations with how this has been. Now, one of the things that Martin Luther is, is helpful for is, is he says that we as Christians, and this is in the 1600s, get obsessed with theologies of glory. 
um, that Jesus comes in glory, that Jesus is power and glory. Um, uh, and as we talk about the return of Christ and sort of what we're awaiting for in this Advent too, it's easy to get into, into thoughts of glory. And what Luther always wanted to correct theologies of glory with was with theology of the cross. He thought that if you were going to even get to the theology of glory, you still had to go to the cross to get there. Now Luther... Um, uh, his church comes to him and they ask him at some point, when are you going to preach something different than, than this sort of news? And he says, when you start believing it. Um, so Luther never quite makes it from the theology of cross to the theology of glory because it doesn't become clear to Christians that we believe the theology of the cross before the glory. But with this psalm, this part of this lament holds out for us is that who can live and not see the grave? Or who can escape the power of the grave? Lord, where is your great love which you swore to David? It names the frustration that comes with the cross. There's a, there's a line um, that the wood of the manger is the wood of the cross, which I think we remember well. Uh, on Good Friday, when I reverse it, it feels less comfortable. The wood of the cross is also the wood of the manger. Um, I think there's good reason for why that feels less comfortable, but it is that the wood of this manger is also the wood of the cross. As that third song in Luke comes from angels, we are um, tempted to think that it's all glory and good news. And yet what Mary is told later, after the fourth song, is that uh, a sword shall pierce his heart and shall pierce yours too. It's all there in the beginning, what's going to happen here. And so the psalm and Romans and um, 2 Samuel bring up these images for us that, that God doesn't come from anywhere. And yet, and yet what 2 Samuel is, is, is finally saying for us is that God is going to build you too. God is going to build among us. And that's where we, his church, and are called in our faithfulness. But I wanted to spend some time on, on Mary's sort of journey at the beginning of Luke today. This is sort of the um, Sunday where that comes. Um, and as for Protestants, it's always a fun Sunday because we um, are uncomfortable with Mary. Um, All generations shall call me blessed. I'm like, well, come on, like, uh, like five generations, Mary, let's say. Uh, or only Catholic generations shall call you blessed. Um, as Protestants, we'll call you interesting and kind, but not blessed. Um, and it's, it's not worth... <laughs> the early church, uh, Paul barely references Mary, and it's not by name. It's this notion that Christ will be born among, of a woman. Um, and Mark, uh, I believe she's just accosted when she, comes to th when she thinks her son is insane. Um, and John, a uh, little bit higher, and Matthew referenced, but the angel actually comes to visit Joseph. And so it's not like it's clear that um, we got Luke's gospel and, and we're Christians and we stick with the scripture, but the, the tension we feel about Mary, I think, exists in the New Testament as well. Um, uh, it's a tension that we talked about last week or two weeks ago that exists around John the Baptist too, is that you begin to think, okay, well, um, and this is an early church era that if Christ is human, then the people who sort of pointed to him must be like secondary superhumans like he was. Um, and so there might be a reason for sort of trying to correct the status of John and perhaps Mary because what happens is, is you begin to go, well, Mary's still with us. Let's go visit her. 
and that's missing the point. Or to say that, you know, John is, is this one whom we can go gather with his disciples and learn from his school. Again, missing the point. Um, but Luke preserves this very high spot for Mary. The, the angel, um, when he comes and visits her, says, Greetings to you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. I mean, what does it mean that Mary, of all people at this time, is highly favored? You can see where you can go down the, I, I always think it's a delicate balance because it's, you can see where you go down the wrong road here. Um, uh, if you begin to take these things further, then perhaps you should. It's always important to remember that um, when Jesus is, is told, blessed is the woman who nursed you, he says, no, blessed is the one who hears and does the word of God. And what that is in Luke is Mary. Um, so she is one who hears and does the word of God. So it's not, uh, that's not a correction to say that Mary is not that, He's saying that if you like, if you think she's blessed, that same blessing comes for you and you're hearing and doing the word of God. So that's all this protection around worshiping. I think I've, I think I've kept at bay the, the bad part of where we could go with Mary well enough. Uh, perhaps we can use, uh, move to more. Um, Mary begins her song, uh, My Soul Magnifies the Lord. It's, it's one of the things as you think about this for a long time is you think God is big, which is not a good category to think of as God. God is neither big nor small, or God is both big and small. Um, but if you think about God as big, what Mary says is, my soul makes God bigger. This is a weird thing. Now, we don't talk about souls much. The psalmist loves talking about souls, and I encourage you to pay attention to where the psalmist tries to rouse his soul, tries to get his soul to do something that talks about the joy that is in his soul. But, but Mary's soul enlarges the Lord. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the Greek, it's like makes mega, makes bigger, expands the Lord. For Mary, um, the question that I asked in the email this week, I think, is as we live our lives, is what does our soul expand? Which is not a comfortable question. Um, going back to singing of God's faithfulness, like what if I were to sing what I sing of joy about? I had to confess that... that um, during the Cubs World Series run a couple years ago, I could sing for joy... And yet, what did I make mega in that moment? That we are now the most annoying baseball fans on the face of the planet. It used to be the Yankees, and then it was the Red Sox, and now there we are. Um, what did I make mega? Just some sort of human achievement. And I, I'm, I don't, I'm not against leisure. I think that God has given us leisure for a reason, to, to be able to enjoy um, watching a, a sport or taking in something that, that gives us uh, properly is a good thing. But I could sing loud at that time, but what else could I proclaim? And I think in our world of, of sort of um, 21st century North American uh, consumerism, uh, we wear sometimes that which we make mega. But, and that, I wasn't trying to pick on sports paraphernalia again, it's also clothing brands. Um, or, uh, for a while, people used to care if you had an Android phone or an iPhone uh, or a BlackBerry way back in the day. And, and what you would do is make mega 
Oh, you've got one of those. And it's weird because, because we're not quite known as Christians for making larger the Lord and the world that we live in. How we do that without just being the annoying neighbor or the loud coworker or the one who always just wants to point that out is a decent question. But I think part of what Mary is proclaiming for us is to take the risk of trying that. What does it mean to make larger the Lord within our souls? What does it mean to break out into joy for God our Savior? Mary's willing to say and name that. She calls herself blessed by God. This is, many of you know we live in the hashtag blessed world. Um, And if you look it up on Instagram, there's like, you would not, the last time I checked, I think there were 4 million posts tagged hashtag blessed. Um, And what I found was, I thought it was only an ironic term. Lots of people use it genuinely when I clicked on it, which was reassuring in humanity that lots of people would say, this is a photo of me uh, with my kids. There were some of, of clear uh, cancer tests. There were some of, um, I mean, there were some of, you know, here's me with a, a hot dog, hashtag blessed. But then there were also lots of authentic things of people willing to say online, here I am as blessed. And the question of calling yourself blessed is who is doing the blessing? Um, how are you blessed? Is it random assortment of circumstances, or is it that someone has blessed you? And so it is for us to sort of live, I think, in this way to ask the question of how is it we can expand the Lord in our world? What is it we can make larger in this place? Mary then goes on. She talks about the lower estate of her uh, servanthood. Um, and that she will be called blessed for all generations, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. That Mary has found in her lowly state one who is lifted up. Now this is, um, uh, the reason I had a nine-year-old read it is because Mary is about um, 13, 14, 15, um, uh, and she's pregnant when she sings this song. This is after, I always in my head, I'm like, oh, this is when the angel visitors. This is actually when she's pregnant and she goes to visit her um, Elizabeth um, and John the Baptist, and that's when she sings this song. So it's a little bit later. So she's a knocked up uh, 14-year-old, and it didn't come from her husband, and she's the one who proclaims this song. And it's the lowliness of that estate, the lowliness of that position can be lost on us to some degree because we know Mary but in this ancient world, that's a place of threat and danger. There's, in Matthew's gospel, it raises the question of whether Joseph will dismiss her. Now she'll be an unwed mother who's 14. Um, and, and the desolation that comes with that, the challenges that would come with that, the, the world that would be with that is not a good world. Um, and so Mary is this one who in her lowliness is one to proclaim what God has done. And what she does is what she proclaims in, a, in the tense, um, that the past tense, he has done these things. He has performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered, scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful. She sees with a vision that God has done these things. 
And there's two ways that I think we can look at that with our, um, our vision with Mary. The first is looking backwards. As we already talked about, Jesus doesn't come from nowhere. Um, that, that when Mary says she has done these, that God has done these things, as a faithful Israelite, she can point to Pharaoh. She can point to those who have forced Israel into exile. She can point to the realities of where this has, not, uh, where this has been true in God's practice throughout history. And I think it's helpful for two ways. One, I, I try to push back on texts that are weaponized in the modern world. And this is a text that Christians weaponize against other Christians. And the first thing I often notice about their Christians is their soul does not make larger the Lord often. They prefer to just weaponize against other people. And so it's always like, a, you got the last half of the thing down, but the first half um, about expanding this God who is uh, beyond us, it, it, it almost just breaks into materialism that God is going to smite these other people. And what's interestingly um, missing from Mary's song that's in Hannah's, another story like this, is that there's, there's low on smiting. Um, is that the rich are sent away empty. And there's this lack that, that the, John the Baptist proclaims in, in one of the Gospels too, is that it's almost like a leveling that's coming with this thing. If all the places you have are filled then you'll go away empty because there's no place for God to fill them. If you think you fulfilled everything like the proud, where could God serve you? You would end up scattered. And so it's not so much that in this passage that God is coming as a judger against these things, although we have later book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, that will remind us of what God is coming as a judge as, but it's so much that in your social situation, where could God fulfill for you? Now, Mary knows this well because the first half, she is lowly. And she wants to believe, she does believe in a God who is beyond that, that, that her current situation is not bound in its material realities. It's Christmas, in 21st century North America, it's hard for us to believe that our social situation is not bound in our realities. The rich who go away empty don't have a place for God to fill them. And so, so much, and I'm sure many of your houses uh, have looked like this at various times in your life, particularly if you had young kids. Is, is Santa here? Um, uh, no, it's just a sleigh. Um, the, uh, well, that was cool. Um, there, under my tree at the moment, there isn't really an empty spot. And this is, Kelly and I are like, what can we not give our kids because everybody else has over-provided for them? Where would God come to those who are rich? Now, obviously, I can't, or maybe I should, uh, punish my kids by teaching them, well, the reason why there's 10 more empty spots on the tree now is because I hit all the other presents. You'll get them in time, but God needs a place to fill. Um, that might be cruel parenting, but I don't know if all would be lost there. But my point is, is that that's an analogy for children. But I think in our life, the security that we aim for uh, whether it be through retirement or whether it be through our jobs or whether pulling all these mechanisms or making sure all the deals we make turn out right for us. Buying a car, 
um, going shopping. That we, we always need everything to be right in this idea that God needs a place to fill us, otherwise we are sent away empty, is just such a challenge for us. And in, in our society, it's, I mean, you could pick on Jeff Bezos, but you can go way lower than that on the income chain to find that, that you can fill all the holes well enough. And it's almost like a disposition in this country that that's the way that we live. And so Mary proclaims this both in the way that God has done it in the past, but the way that God is going to do it in the future. And so it's for us as we await this Advent to create spaces for God to come and fill here, to bring good news to us. We can own that we're proud and that we're rich and that we're rulers and that this is bad news for us. Or we can do two things, I think. One is, is create those spaces in our life where I lost that deal. Not everything turns out right for me. And the second is to connect ourselves to those who exist in this place better. Um, the, when I moved here uh, five years ago, um, if you had told me 50% of the valley was immigrant and, and living um, in trailer parks, I would have said where? Um, now, many of you here have lived here longer than me, but it's a, it's a hidden, pocketed thing throughout the valley. Um, and that's not, it's easy to, to pick on that population um, or to use them as an example. Um, there are many other ways you could do that. My point is, is that we live dislocated lives that we don't see all the people we can be connected to in our immediate world that are in need. Um, you can, uh, I used to talk about this earlier when I started, is if you wanted to, you could do drive-through for Starbucks, you could pick up your groceries and, and uh, the, they would bring them out to you, you could do this. You could almost not interact with somebody. It's not even so much that you wouldn't notice, it's that you wouldn't even have to see them. Um, and what does it mean for Christians to be people who see others? We're connected to, in their own world, people whom this might be better news for. It's hard here. I mean, I'm not going to tell you that um, if you live in a society where people die from lack of access to clean water, that anybody in North America exists sort of in that, that mindset. But it's what we can do in faithfulness. Um, it's what we can do for God. Uh, there's one last thing I wanted to close with. I like... Um, old, old things. Um, and there's this quote from uh, Irenaeus uh, on the back of the bulletin. Um, this is a completely different subject. Uh, this image of Mary and Eve, um, you see the snake on Eve um, and her hair, not clothes. Uh, another sign that it's Eve and not um, uh, anybody else. And, and Mary on the other side in traditional Mary garb. And, and Mary is, I believe, stepping on the snake. Yeah. Um, I think this artistically captures some good news of what comes for us today in this passage, in Mary's life and in Mary's witness. And what I would say um, is that, again, I, I thought I did it well enough, I think, but there are problems with images like this if you take them too high. Uh, um, Mary can begin to look like the one who stamps out the snake instead of Jesus, blah, blah, blah. But it's just an artistic expression for the devotional thought, which I'll read, which is on the back of the bulletin. As Eve was seduced by the word of an angel and so fled from God after disobeying his word, Mary, in her turn, was given good news by the word of an angel and bore God in obedience to his word. 
as Eve was seduced into disobedience to God, so Mary was persuaded into obedience to God. Thus the Virgin Mary became the advocate of the Virgin Eve. Christ gathered all things into one by gathering them into himself. He declared war against our enemy, crushed him who at the beginning had taken us captive in Adam, and trampled on his head, and according to the words uh, of the serpent in Genesis. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall lie and wait for your head, and you shall lie and wait for his heel. He shows this even more clearly in the same letter when he says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son born of a woman. The enemy would not have been defeated fairly if his vanquished had been born, had not been born of a woman, because it was through a woman that he gained mastery over man in the beginning and set himself up as man's adversary. That is why the Lord proclaims himself. Let's see, I meant to grab a bulletin. Um, that is why the Lord proclaims himself the Son of Man, the one who renews in himself that first man from whom the race bore of woman was for, born of woman was formed. By a man's defeat, our race fell into the bondage of death. So by a man's victory, we were to raise again to life. That in Mary, what we see is the reversal of what came to us in Eve. And it's the one that she bears that restores us to our image in God. And restores us to be bearers of his image into the world. Let us pray. God, you have been faithful throughout generations. You've been faithful through David's line. You've been faithful to what you promised us in Genesis. that you will stamp out the serpent's head. And so it is for us to sing of your faithfulness, to find ways to have our joy sing of who and what you are and what you've done for us. To see, as Mary sees, what you have defeated and smashed in the past. To see that in your faithfulness you fill empty places. You'll scatter us who think we have it all together. So we are called to sing to that. To sing to your goodness. To sing of your love. To sing of your faithfulness. And in that way may our souls like Mary's, begin to enlarge your presence in the world. May we make larger the God who has seen us as his lowly servants and not forgotten his promises. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.